Solving the net zero equation is very complex, especially when you're navigating quarterly earnings. And a lot of companies have put commitments out there with great intent, with positioning that says, well, we'll figure out the details later. Well, for those companies, the later is now. From McKinsey's Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. That was Laura Korb, one of the experts with us today to discuss considerations for executives related to the U.S. SEC's proposed new rule on climate risk disclosure. This development is particularly relevant to CFOs of public companies under the jurisdiction of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. If the rule is adopted, it will have important reporting ramifications for most companies doing business globally. Now I'd like to introduce our guests. Laura is a senior partner in our New York office. She leads our sustainability practice in North America and serves clients on developing and implementing their net zero plans. Laura also serves on McKinsey's board of directors, where she chairs our finance and infrastructure committee. Kimberly Henderson is a partner in our Washington, D.C. office and a core leader of our sustainability practice. She serves investors, nonprofits, energy and industrial players and policymakers on sustainability and climate-related issues. We're also joined today by Tim Kohler, a partner in our Denver office, who helps lead our global team of corporate finance consultants. Tim serves a wide range of clients on strategic planning, resource allocation, as well as capital markets and mergers and acquisitions. Tim's also the co-author of the best-selling book, Valuation, now in its seventh edition. Finally, Shelley Venugopal is a principal in our Washington, D.C. office and leads Vivid Economics for North America. Vivid is a boutique climate firm that McKinsey acquired last year that's focused on climate risk and is part of our global sustainability practice. Laura, Kimberly, Tim, and Shally, welcome. Laura, let's start with you. Can you share the broad strokes of these recent developments around climate risk and net zero that have led up to this potential SEC rule? Thank you, Sean. And to set the stage, let me begin by saying there are really a handful of forces that are making sustainability absolutely critical for your organization today. The largest capital reallocation in history is commencing with four to five trillion dollars to be invested annually across around 10 sustainability arenas. And approximately 11 trillion dollars worth of assets will need to be retired. As you know, investor scrutiny and expectations have been on the rise, and that will only increase with greater transparency that we'll talk about today. Consumers and employees are increasingly making choices factoring climate into their decisions. And this is really akin to the early days of digital. Winners and losers will be created. The basis of competition will shift for most industries. And in this context, the SEC proposed disclosure guidelines represent a critical inflection point and a catalyst for doing business in North America. Thank you, Laura. Um, Kimberly, is there any significance to the timing of this proposed disclosure rule? Yeah, so the proposed rule from the SEC comes in the context of growing momentum globally towards climate action and towards standardized climate-related risk disclosures. So we're seeing regulators around the world introducing such disclosure regimes, So the UK, New Zealand, Japan, Hong Kong, and the EU are all moving ahead with similar measures. Um, Companies have expressed more and more support for these types of disclosures. Um, The Task Force for Climate-Related Disclosures 
had issued voluntary guidelines, which companies around the world have embraced. 2,600 companies endorsed those guidelines in 2021. Um, The vast majority of institutional investors are citing climate risk as a leading issue that's driving their engagement with companies now. And we saw last year the creation of an International Sustainability Standards Board, which is also coming out with, with guidelines. Got it. Can you take us through the kind of disclosures the proposed SEC rule would require companies to make if it were adopted? Um, so this rule would require filers to disclose material climate impacts, greenhouse gas emissions, and any targets or transition plans. So first, material risks and strategic implications. So the SEC proposed rule, as written, requires companies or would require companies to disclose physical climate risks. So from physical climate hazards like fire or flood and to disclose those by location and by share of assets exposed. It also asks for disclosures on transition risks, which could be regulatory, technological risks, market risks, reputational risks. It also asks for those risks for companies to share the impacts of those risks and the impacts over the short-term, medium-term, and long-term, and the types of impacts that that the rule says it would require are strategic impacts, financial impacts, operational impacts. It also asks for the governance and risk management processes that companies are using to manage these risks. So that's the first category. If we go to the second category, greenhouse gas emissions, the proposed rule would require audited scope one and scope two emissions which those are the emissions generated by the company's own operations and the electricity they purchase. It requires scope three disclosures if they are material or if there is a scope three target. And scope three are upstream and downstream emissions that are along the whole value chain of the company. The reporting for greenhouse gas emissions would need to be in absolute terms, so the total number of greenhouse gases, and in intensity terms. And intensity is both per unit of revenue, so economic intensity, greenhouse gases per dollar, and per unit of product. So for instance, in automotive, it could be greenhouse gases per car. They also ask for descriptions of how those emissions estimates were developed, and they would require, based on the current text, a disclosure of emissions disaggregated by greenhouse gas, so whether it's methane or nitrous oxide or CO2, and by the type of source. So stationary sources versus transportation, for instance. And then lastly, the third category is the targets and transition plans. Any climate-related targets that companies have under the current text of the rule would need to be disclosed. And that includes greenhouse gas targets, but also, as, as written in the current draft, any other type of related target, which could be energy use, could be nature conservation, revenues from low carbon products. If targets exist, if the company has a target, the SEC would want disclosure on the transition plans to achieve those targets and also asks for some specific information about use of offsets or renewable energy credits. It also asks that if if the company uses an internal carbon price, that there's disclosure about that price, about the level and how that's set and what it covers. It sounds like extensive and complex reporting. And if this rule is adopted, when would it take effect? So for large companies that file with the SEC, they would have to disclose most of this as of fiscal year 2023, so filing year is 2024. Smaller companies have a year grace period, so that's it's 2024, fiscal year 2024, when they would um, have to do the, their first disclosures. For scope three emissions, 
It is a year later. And so the SEC gives more time for scope three, given the challenges um, in quantifying it. And the proposed rule applies to U.S. 10K filers, so 10K, the annual report, but also foreign private issuers who filed 20F forms with the SEC. So the scope three disclosures sound particularly challenging, partly because companies would have to report emissions based on the activities of companies in their supply chain with whom they have an arm's length relationship. Is that the reason why scope three is delayed from a timing perspective, Kimberly? Okay, I'll start and then I'll let Shally pile on. Uh, so the, the delay in the timeline, of course, for scope three is very helpful for companies because they should have a lot more information on scope one and two from other companies that report the, a year prior. Uh, that said, scope three quantification in general is extremely hard. Um, part of what uh, part of the challenge is that this these emissions are not the core, not part of the core business of a company. So companies don't have a full understanding of what creates emissions in all of their supply chain, and they often don't have good data on that. So Shally, I'll let you add because I'm sure you have thoughts on this one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think in addition to that, I would say that what we've heard from our clients, particularly in banking, where scope three financed emissions are one of the key things that they're trying to tackle, is that they really... Uh, I think there is an appreciation for the fact that scope one and two come first because it's that data that then will be used to interpolate what happens in 2024. So right right along the lines that Kimberly said. The one other point that I would mention is that the EPA right now requires any major point source of emissions to be reported to the EPA, and that covers most of U.S. greenhouse gas inventory, right? So the question is, what happens to the other percent? And also what happens to the 100% from other countries, particularly where there's no mandated disclosure. And therein sort of lies your, your challenge with scope three. And with public companies, there, is, there has been a fair amount of reporting, for example, in CDP reports and other sources. And there's, there's lots of data aggregators that are pulling that information together. But it's in the private markets where we see a much bigger challenge, like Kimberly mentioned as well. We have seen a few startups begin in this space. Some of them just announced in the last few weeks, which is really interesting, um, trying to collect some of this private market data. And to Kimberly's point, again, like having this ramp up really will help with the quality of the reporting. From what we're seeing in just the past two weeks, banks are already starting to stand up teams around this internally. And so I think there is an expectation whether or not the rule passes in its final form or what the timing will be Everyone wants to get as much time in as they can to prepare. Shelly, I want, I want to pick on one thing you said, because I think it's actually important, is this financed emissions point. That in the, in the written draft, the SEC said it would likely be considered scope three. And that is a very big deal. So if we think of companies that are not required to file under this, they might still be financed by parties that, are, that do need to file their scope three. And they're also likely to be in the supply chain of companies that need to file their scope three. So even companies that don't have to file directly could be impacted here. And, and a final That's point, uh, I'm sorry, Shelley, a, a final point I will add is a lot of the dialogue has been, what's the impact of scope three on a company as they think about their suppliers? But of course, you can reverse that and say, what's the impact of showing your scope one and scope two emissions to your customers, and how will that dynamic play out over time? Thank you. Uh, 
It sounds like a wide range of companies will be affected by this rule in some shape or form if it's adopted. Shelley, how does this SEC proposal compare to the climate disclosure regimes in other countries and regions? So in the UK and the EU, as well as in the last few weeks, the IFRS released their first draft of their guidance called ISSB standards. So very similar to the climate disclosure standards that we've seen in other jurisdictions as well. But the key thing that I want to pull out is IFRS standards are broader than the SEC standards in two ways. So first, they have one standard that goes beyond climate. So that in and of itself is sort of a big difference. And then the second is within the climate disclosure standards, required scope one and scope two emissions, required scope three emissions, whether they're material or not, reporting climate, material climate risks, including scenario analysis, which is basically forward-looking analysis under different scenarios for decarbonization that society would go through, as well as physical risks might manifest. And across the board, we see this strong focus on governance, including board oversight. And this is one example of, I think, how all of these rules have in some sense had a parent, which is TCFD, um, the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures. And that parent has sort of defined many of the principles around reporting under four categories. So governance, strategy, risk management, targets, and metrics. And we see all of these different jurisdictions adopting that from a principles approach. But the key difference between the SEC and these other disclosure regimes is that the breadth is a little bit narrower and the prescription is a little bit greater. And that's really quite akin to what you see in the differences between U.S. GAAP, for example, and the IFRS standards. And, and I think we sort of say, see that play through. The one other difference is that with the ISSB standards that just came out, they're also focusing on drawing from SASB, which is a disclosure standard that is rooted in sector-specific guidance. And that sector-specific guidance provides a little bit more prescription of a slightly different flavor, which is they want you to get to reporting on specific sectors and your performance relative to that sector um, so that investors have a better sense of how you might be performing against your peers, whereas the SEC treats all sectors relatively equal and is much deeper on the prescription in terms of financial metrics and reporting rather than that industry flavor. If we could come back for a moment to scope three emissions, Shelley, when that data isn't public, say because your suppliers are foreign or private, how would organizations actually access that information in order to fulfill their own required reporting purposes related to Scope 3? Yeah, Sean, that, that's a good question. And, and I think Scope 3 has been a challenge for companies and financial institutions now for the many, many past years. The Greenhouse Gas Protocol provides guidance on how to measure Scope 3, but there is a dearth of information on how to actually access that Scope 3 information, like we mentioned before. So I think the this the scope three data availability for public companies right now is quite strong. We have a lot of data providers that are providing that information. And that's really like when you think about a data score, that's your top quality data score when a company directly provides that information. So that's the kind of first triage point. The second triage point that people often go through are of two different flavors. So one, they'll use emissions factors in order to approximate the emissions from a specific activity. Kimberly mentioned 
absolute intensity metrics, for example. So emissions per unit of production, like vehicle miles driven. So if you have vehicle miles driven, you can convert that into the emissions based on, for example, the make and model and year of a specific vehicle. So people are going through those types of calculations to proxy scope three. And that's kind of like your next level of triage. And then the final triage point and what a lot of data providers out there do with a large margin of error is try to approximate for specific sectors what production metrics are and as a result what the imputed emissions would be. And as you can imagine, one of the challenges with that is that you have a lot of sectoral variety, right? And so you're going to have a pretty big error margin when you're looking at estimating scope three that way. Thanks, Shally. Some some companies have been reporting climate-related information for a while, and I'm curious what they have found to be the biggest challenges, and are there any lessons from their experience that others who are now embarking on this might leverage? Many entities have been doing this kind of reporting on a voluntary basis, and increasingly in UK and EU, um, starting the process or completing the process on mandatory disclosure, as well as stress testing exercises. And increasingly in, the, in, in North America, we've also seen an uptick in companies releasing TCFD reports and also, as I mentioned the last few weeks, just trying to scramble and put together central execution teams or other sort of groups to, to tackle what could be this proposed, if this proposed rule comes to pass. And the key messages that we've heard from folks who are working on this, so First, lack of ambition, focus, or urgency at the board and management level. This sometimes happens when, uh, you know, companies are still trying to figure out what their climate ambition is, to what extent they want to report that ambition publicly or try to operationalize it internally as well. And that comes up to the, the second point, which is there are often decentralized execution teams without proper resource allocation or holistic direction. One of the things that is very clear from this SEC proposal, because they address all of these risks and emissions reporting at the enterprise-wide level, it's very important to have these cross-silo interactions between finance and strategy and risk. Otherwise, it's hard to pull that together into a coherent investor story. The third is setting climate targets without a pressure-tested plan or demonstrated progress This is one of the most interesting things that I think um, most interesting comments we've seen come out of this reflections to the SEC proposal is that folks are concerned that there might be a bit of a chilling effect for those companies who have set targets and do not necessarily have this pressure tested plan to get there or their peers don't have these targets. And so they feel a little bit queasy about the fact that they would now have to report targets. Um, And so I think the, the one takeaway from this proposal, as well as some of the other disclosure standards out there, is how important it is to make sure that when you're setting targets, there's a feasibility plan and an analysis of like what decarbonization levers you have and which ones are in the money or out of the money. The fourth here is poor quality data and tracking systems. We've talked about this issue from the broader sense of trying to collect emissions data as well as risk information. But beyond that, there's also Um, a need for improved data and technology internally that brings together information from multiple lines of businesses and geographies in order to make sure that your reporting is going to meet audit and assurance standards, for example. Um, The fifth 
point here is a lack of team or inadequate access or sources of expertise, analytical tools and, and, and the such. And this is a really important point that I really want to emphasize is that the disclosure requires high amount of analytical heft in order to understand what materiality is, not just from accounting perspective, but from a climate science perspective. And having those tools will be quite essential to ensuring that you pass, for example, in banking, the first line and the second line and the third line of defense, and for corp corporations, your governance and risk management systems as well. And then finally, waiting a little bit too long to get started and losing the chance to trial the process before a real disclosure sprint. That has been something we've heard from our European colleagues that waiting until the last minute to get your house in order can make for quite a scramble and being able to have a little bit more lead time before jumping into the final and real disclosure sprint and running water through the pipes can really help um, jumpstart the process. Thanks, Shally. And in your work with clients, do any of these challenges particularly stand out? Or in other words, are there any that companies should prioritize? What we hear is the emissions data. Um, that's what is most talked about. But I think that from, from my, and this is my personal opinion, personal perspective, I think the, the risk analytics and measurement, as well as the kind of senior management and board oversight, to me are some of the critical challenges because the rule, while quite prescriptive on specific metrics, has much broader implications for how we think about this or need or companies need to think about this from an enterprise-wide lens. If you're able to kind of get the plan right and get the ambition right at the top at the, at the sort of top level, then that can flow and cascade down to all of the folks that need to interact to make these kind of disclosures and craft the investor story that you need to craft. Sean, can I share my reflection on this? There's a couple things in the proposed rule that are really outside the wheelhouse of most companies. Um, one is the physical climate risk analysis, because this is you know, geospatial uh, analysis of future climate events. Again, just not something that many companies are, are used to doing. And the second area we've discussed, but it is really hard, is scope three. Got it. So it seems the CFO will really need to be in the driver's seat for all of this reporting. They're the ones that are going to be signing their names to the filings, after all. And it sounds like the complexity of the CFO's responsibilities will grow significantly with this. Would you agree, Laura? That's right. And the sustainability lens will really have to be incorporated through so many dimensions of your current role. And so we see six key imperatives for CFOs. The first that we were just talking about is the challenge and necessity of really understanding your starting point and your starting point on emissions, but also on physical and transition risk and also on your organization's capability to deliver. Secondly, is you need to ensure that you have a credible, achievable plan that meets your commitments while also driving value creation. And that's not easy. Solving the net zero equation is very complex especially when you're navigating quarterly earnings. And a lot of companies have put commitments out there with great intent, with uh, positioning that says, well, uh, we'll figure out the details later. Well, for those companies, 
The later uh, is now, and now's the time to figure it out. The third is around governance. And uh, we've just talked a bit about the governance expectations that are incorporated into these uh, proposed disclosure rules. What this means for you is really thinking through how you're going to interact with the board on target setting, on risk management, and on plan approval and, and, and showing, uh, showing your trajectory against the plan. You'll have to think through how you as CFO work with the senior management team, with the chief procurement officer, the chief sustainability officer, the business leaders, and of course the CEO. And also, how will you incorporate net zero planning and performance management into your strategy and your operational review cadence? Because now it is really integral in a way that has not been in the past. Uh, the fourth dimension is really how do you factor in uh, the costs of, of climate risks and the upside? Uh, what does this mean for your cost of capital assumptions, uh, your portfolio strategy, uh, your, your resource allocation? Uh, where will you set the co- cost of carbon uh, offsets uh, that we were just speaking about? Fifth is, is uh, where, where there's a lot of attention is just really on how much work this will require and, and what talent this will require, both financial talent, but also client science, ta- uh, client, climate science talent uh, to really create uh, the reporting and tracking and compliance mechanism. We had a uh, web- webinar with about 265 banking clients uh, just a couple days after the disclosures came out. There was a lot of talk among the uh, the group in the chat about uh, the heavy lift of this uh, from their perspective uh, relative to uh, CCAR and SOX. So just recognizing that this is going to be an important area for organizations to build the capabilities. And then finally, how do you craft an investor story where the climate perspective and pathway and the value creation pathway are really one and the same. Tim, a quick question for you as our expert on corporate valuation. How do you see the reporting of climate-related risks affecting investor and market perceptions? Um, I think it's important to realize that there are different audiences here. SEC and all these other government reporting agencies have used this as an opportunity to you know, require reporting some of which is not actually going to be relevant to many investors, right? Because investors can't absorb all of this information. So it's important to remember that your audiences is not just investors. Your audience is the government itself and regulators. The, the audience that's going to be interested in this are activists um, and other and politicians, political parties, uh, consumer groups, perhaps, and other things like that. And, and different investors will approach this differently as well. Some investors are just going to be looking at a, at a score and deciding whether to invest in your company or not. Others are much more sophisticated. Uh, as you think about this, most investors, sophisticated investors, are going to be focused on what is material. Let me just give you an, a, a crazy example. The SEC currently requires that every single company that files with the SEC report on mine safety, Right even if they have nothing to do with mine. So every single 10K out there has a little thing, a paragraph on mine safety, right? So there's a lot of disclosures that investors you know, will may or may not use, but when you're crafting your investor story, you're gonna have to boil it down to the things that are material to investors. A lot of this will be material, uh, but investors are gonna be 
you know, so, so to some extent, you got to think about, I got to satisfy different audiences here, right? I got the government, I've got activists, et cetera. And then I have investors, sophisticated investors. They're going to want to understand, though, what's really going to affect the economics of the business. So this is really complicated because of the different audiences that you have to, you're dealing with. Thanks, Tim. Laura, let's circle back to your earlier point about the possible impact of these proposed regulations and the potential opportunities this could open up for companies. We believe fundamentally that you need to play defense on risk and offense on growth. And as I said before, figure out how to make your climate strategy and plan and and how you respond actually uh, tied to a real value creation story. And a conversation we've been having with a lot of CEOs and CFOs that I think has been very eye-opening is what is the full potential of the, the drags on uh, economic profit and then, and then the positives when you take a holistic view of the potential over time, the full potential by really kind of green sheeting your business end to end. And uh, of course there are costs. Uh, there could be a higher uh, cost of capital if you're lagging your industry peers. Uh, there can be market share loss uh, if, if your business is perceived as, as, as browner uh, and customers start pivoting away. And there are costs of decarbonization uh, that, that you'll have to bear over time. But it, it's really important to emphasize uh, the offset, which is the opportunities for growth by playing offense. And in conversations, I think the... the um, the pleasant surprise has been just how much opportunity there is given, given shifting value pools. And as I said before, it is really akin to the early days of digital. We're seeing massively shifting value pools. So in terms of portfolio strategy, uh, there are many examples. Uh, one I like is Orsted uh, in, in the Nordics that used to be a kind of classic utility company uh, focused on fossil fuels and oil and gas. And they really pivoted their portfolio quite aggressively to become the world leader in offshore wind uh, development. And now their market cap is uh, equivalent to BP, which is kind of a stunning thought. In terms of green business building, we're finding uh, incumbents have all kinds of opportunities, whether you're a financial services company, a consumer company, or in one of the classic, you know, very heavy emitting sectors, or really any sector to develop new green businesses that can create a, a whole new business model. There are opportunities to, to secure market chain get, share gain through product design, through positioning for consumers and finding the high growth sub-segments that uh, a more green focus enables. And finally, in terms of green operations, there are uh, real opportunities to actually have a stacked win where you're actually helping uh, move towards the environmental goals, but also reducing costs. And I want to point out here that in, in several areas, there are real first mover advantages uh, to moving now in terms of uh, tying up sourcing uh, where, where there's, uh, there is or will be scarce supply, and there's currently not a price premium. And uh, uh, we see that uh, happening a lot uh, in, in a lot of markets. So I would just encourage CFOs to really think through as you develop your pathway plan or as you detail it out more and start showing progress to make sure it's really integrated with this value creation plan, 
that has both the defense on risk and the offense on growth. Can I just add something to that, um, Laura, as well? The, the challenge for incumbents is that there are there is a ton of venture capital money and lots of entrepreneurs out there who are going to be pursuing the same opportunities that you are, right? So just because you're big and you've got lots of capital, lots of cash flow coming in from your mature businesses, uh, which may be declining, by the way, you still have to develop a competitive advantage if you're going to go into these businesses. You're not going to create value just by being a me too participant in these value in, in, in these businesses. And that's going to be a big challenge because you may have to run these businesses differently. You may not have the talent if you're going to go into uh, renewables, right? You're competing against entrepreneurs backed by lots of capital. Uh, and if you don't have an entrepreneurial culture because you're an incumbent, it's going to be very difficult. So you're going to have to really think hard about what are the competitive advantages that we bring uh, and how do I run these businesses differently, uh, particularly when it comes to green business building, right? How do I attract the right talent? How do I incent the right talent? How do I invest enough to make sure I win in those markets? So this is a the, the winning in these new areas related to energy transition in general uh, is not going to be easy for incumbents. So it's it you got to start now. Obviously, there's a the, the quicker you move, the the, the faster. But you do also have to figure out, I can't just throw money at it. I also have to make sure I've got the right talent, the right business model, the right technologies, the right mindset, et cetera, to be successful. It seems that this proposed climate disclosure rule could also serve as a kind of jolt, if you will, for companies needing to take serious steps to address climate change in their businesses, both on the downside and the upside. Absolutely. And, and, and that's why uh, we do keep referencing uh, the digital disruption, and we actually think that that this will move at a pace uh, that's that's faster and uh, even broader. You know, as we said before, the the proposed disclosure requirements are are an important uh, inflection point, uh, and certainly sets a, a new standard in terms of uh, compliance and 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 the work you will need to do uh, for that. But it's really important to have the mindset and approach that this goes way beyond disclosure. Uh, this really implies intentional uh, enterprise redesign, what we call really green sheeting your company end to end and action. And, and as Tim just said, the action really needs to happen at pace. And it's going to require uh, quite a bit of problem solving to solve the net zero equation uh, to be on a pathway towards 1.5 degrees uh, and in the time frame that uh, most people have already committed to. And of course, uh, the time between now and 2030 is absolutely critical uh, from a planet perspective and from what you are doing in your roles over these next couple of years is actually going to be decisive. Thanks, Laura. I, now I'd like to return for a moment, if we could, to the reporting methodology. First, wouldn't scope three emissions be captured within scope one and two if all companies are already reporting their emissions in scope one and two? And how do you account for scope three of suppliers that are, say, private companies or maybe aren't subject to these rules? Kimberly, can you take that one? There are a few challenges here that the scope one and two disclosures won't solve. So one is global supply chains. So many companies are sourcing inputs that come from all over the world and many from companies that might not be subject to these disclosures. 
So that's one challenge. Another that we've mentioned before, um, those the private uh, company suppliers. There are a lot of private companies that are not listed and aren't under the same um, requirements that we've just gone through from the SEC. And so that's another source of emissions in the supply chain that's, that's hard to somehow identify and quantify. Another challenge is the fact that supply chains are multi-layered. And so as a company, you might know your suppliers and say, okay, I, I have a good list of my suppliers and how much we buy from them, what we buy from them. And in a best case scenario, you have a lot of CDP data available from those suppliers or from these future SEC disclosures. And you say, okay, I can work with that. The problem is that that's only the first level of your supply chain. You have to keep going up, right? And then there's, you know, this, your suppliers' suppliers and their suppliers and their suppliers, and the data quality and, and even just the understanding gets gets poorer as you go. And it also impacts other aspects of the disclosures. So not so not just the scope three estimates, but also transition plans for any company that has a scope three target. Getting that understanding of where are the emissions along your value chain, what drives them, and how can you work with your suppliers and your suppliers' suppliers, et cetera, potentially your whole industry, to take down, down those emissions, it's a real challenge. Like the, the change that needs to be driven in the, in, in the real world across value chains is, is enormous. And, um, and companies struggle, even companies with the best of intentions, um, they struggle because you know, at a very basic level, they often just don't even fully understand the emissions upstream. Given these challenges, are you seeing any industry associations that are trying to tackle this in a cooperative way for their member companies? Or are there some other macro solutions that companies can tap? Shally, maybe you could take a first cut at this? There are a number of industry associations who have come together to sort of talk about some of these challenges. I'm not sure that there has been clear prescription or sort of joint venture on some of these challenges, though I have seen groups of companies, for example, in Silicon Valley come together on like how they might how they might improve data sharing between them. I think that one of the challenges with having industry associations help with this data is that there's a lot of competitive pressure, um, I think, between different companies and some confidentiality related, especially to supply chains. So that said, I've seen very recently some companies come together on trying to refine methodologies around scope three. And this is a pretty important initiative because for some companies, if you look at their scope three emissions and you use the sort of traditional definitions or the ones that are are, are most often talked about, which is um, you know, looking at it from a supply chain perspective and from an organizational perspective, you get to a slightly different number than if you think about scope three from a product perspective. So it's the difference between looking at the life cycle emissions of a car, for example, versus for an organization looking at scope three more holistically and thinking about business travel and other sort of aspects of scope three. Uh, it sounds like multinationals with global supply chains may face some of the biggest reporting challenges here. Kimberly, any particular complexities you'd like to point to? So so it is a real challenge, right? And I think this is part of what the proposed rule is is getting at of trying to get companies to really measure this over time across all their operations. And the degree of difficulty can vary widely. So on one end of the spectrum might be your scope two where a lot of companies do track kilowatt hours, you know, at each site. 
and doing that analysis of, okay, what does that mean in terms of emissions? It's not, not too, too challenging. I think it gets much more complicated in some other areas. So methane, for instance, where methane is very uh, poorly tracked and quantified um, in many parts of the world today. Um, and there's a lot of solutions that are being stood up to help with that, you know, from satellite data to drones, et cetera. You could you know, probably see the same for nitrous oxide and some of the other greenhouse gases, where, again, it's not just a straight question of how many kilowatt hours you're buying or how much oil are you burning. Um, so so the, the data, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm maybe echoing the question that it is a challenge and it does mean building up new capabilities and tracking across the company. Um, I do, as written, there, there, is, um, there is a bit of a grace period, particularly for Q4 data. And so there's, there's a recognition that estimates would be needed, particularly for Q4. Um, but that said, it's, it's, you know, this now needs to be tracked in a similar way that companies track financials. So who's responsible for reporting emissions of a non-reporting entity? Is, is that what scope three is for, or would it be included in reporting by a bank maybe that's financing that entity, or would it come through the supply chain? And if it's all the above, how do you prevent double counting? Double counting is almost by definition going to be really hard to limit with scope three. And when we've worked with clients in the past, even with all of the guidance that's out there, it's really hard to demarcate what those concentric circles are between your entity and the real economy around you. And I think this is something that is very much recognized by everyone in the industry, recognized by the SEC, and something that is for better or worse here for us to stay until we find better ways to figure it out as a society. And I think that this disclosure, sort of disclosure regimes in some sense, are starting to try to tackle this by being a bit of a forcing event, right? So to, to get people to start reporting these emissions, facing these challenges, and iterating on figuring it out. And I, I imagine that that's some of the intent behind the Scope 3 safe harbor, as well as the exclusions for small companies are meant to address the fact that this will take a bit, a bit of time to figure out, in addition to the, to the lag on scope three or more reporting. When we think about parallels to CCAR and SOX, many of those regimes took many, many years to figure out. And I think what, from what we've heard, this may be the case um, for this climate disclosure reporting as well, that it will take years to sort of funnel and sort itself out as people report, collect data, and try to figure out the, the auditing and assurances as well. Shally, I might take it a step further in, in the response here that on double counting, double counting in scope three is a feature, not a bug. It is, it is expected. It is just the nature of scope three. The same greenhouse gas emissions could be scope three for many, many different companies. Um, and that's just the nature of it. And I think the question, Sean, as you raised it, I, I, I think that's the correct framing that for companies that aren't filing these disclosures directly, they're impacted because they could be supplying to companies that are, or they could be financed by companies that are. And either of those would make them part of a scope three emissions calculation, most likely. That, that's right. And I, I like the feature, not a bug framing. You know, the other thing I would say is, you know, 
we, we uh, keep talking about the complexity. And, and while it is exceedingly complex, there is actually, you know, quite a learning curve. And there's a lot of work that has been done. This has been a primary uh, uh, area of focus for us in our client service. Uh, we've been doing it for, you know, quite a long time. And certainly in the past year have seen a real uptick in terms of uh, companies' desire to really get their handle on uh, Scope 3. Thank you so much, Laura, Kimberly, Tim, and Shally. We really appreciate you taking the time with us today. It was great to have you, and this was a fascinating discussion. And thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. We hope you enjoyed it. As always, we'll share a transcript of this conversation on the Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, where you can also easily explore our library of more than 100 previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, just email us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up on our podcast collection page, again at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, or follow us on Twitter at MCKStrategy, or connect with us on LinkedIn on the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again next week inside the Strategy Room.